Welcome to the B2B Marketing Results Show, where we examine new ways to achieve B2B growth with insights from today's top professional marketers. Hi there, I'm your host, Derek Little, and this is the podcast for companies of all sizes wanting to transform their marketing and accelerate their growth. In this episode, I was honored to speak with Paul Smith. Paul is one of the world's leading experts in business storytelling and a best-selling author of several books on the subject. His most recent book, The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell, was created to help leaders focus on the most foundational, practical, influential, and functional stories. In this interview, he introduces his 10 top stories and gives you an eight-step formula for telling a great one every time. Here's what he had to say. I think I could probably be accused of not being very focused in my earlier work on storytelling, meaning I, uh, in my first three books, I talked about, I think I counted up, it was 70 different types of stories. So from leadership stories to sales and marketing stories to stories parents tell their kids. And, and, and I think there are over 250 examples in those uh, first three books, lead with a story, parenting with a story and, and sell with a story. Um, and uh, so, like I said, I, I think if I did anything, uh, it was to be too, uh, too broad and not focused enough. And I, I finally found an opportunity to focus and say, okay, well, what are the most important ones? Because <laughs> that's obviously an, an awful lot of stories. And I, I literally had a, a publisher just a year or so ago approach me about writing a book that could be read in a single hour, which was novel to me. Like I'd never heard of that before. I didn't know that was a, a genre of book. Uh, but apparently it's a, a, a pretty popular format, I guess I would call it, of book nowadays. And you think the busy executive like yourself maybe gets on an airplane and wants to read a book and finish it by the time the plane lands kind of thing. So um, that w- I thought was a perfect opportunity to write a really short book just on the most important 10 stories that leaders need to tell. And so instead of there you know, being 70 types of stories or 25 types of stories, it's just 10, one example of each story. And a few tips on how to craft your own. So, so you can literally get through that book in, in one hour. So how did you pick the 10 most important stories? So uh, four criteria uh, I used. First of all, um, I wanted to pick stories that I knew would be of practical use to my readers and clients. So I literally looked back through my list of, you know, I've been doing this about seven years now, um, seven years worth of client engagements where leaders have engaged me to help them craft stories. So I just looked in s- to see what ones were they asking for help on. Okay, so that that would tell me that those are practical stories that leaders needed. The second criteria was I wanted to pick areas that I knew leaders needed to exert some influence in the organization. So that, quite frankly, was just my own 25 or 30 years of kicking around in the business world of my own experience, I know there are certain areas where leaders must exert some influence and other areas that are just not as important. And I think when you see the list, you'll you'll recognize that. Um, third, I wanted stories that would benefit all functional leaders. So not just the CEO or the vice president or something, or not just the marketing director or the sales VP or not just the engineering manager, IT or HR or whatever, but everybody. So stories that Every leader in an organization needs to be able to tell these stories. And then the, the fourth criteria were, was that I wanted to pick stories that wouldn't need to change very often. Because, you know, there, there are some stories that you'll tell one or two times and then th- th- you've accomplished your objective and then you never need to tell that story again. Whereas, you know, your, your founding story, which is uh, one of the 10 stories, well, gosh, that story is never going to change. 
right? I mean, your companies usually only get founded one time, and you can tell that story forever. So I wanted to focus on stories where it would behoove you to to get the story right because you know you're going to need this story over and over and over again for for years, if not decades. So th- those are the four criteria, and the, the ten I picked uh, kind of floated to the top using using those criteria. The small businesses that I work with are challenged to tell their business story. And I found that this is kind of a combination of their core values, like what you call a what we believe story and what mm-hmm. makes them different, which is another mm-hmm. one of your stories. Can you tell me more about those two types of stories? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, what their, bu- their business story, that's, that's a little vague. It could be a lot of things. But I think the, those two you picked uh, certainly would help them articulate who their company is and what they're about. Um, so uh, what we believe story, uh, which I call a corporate values story, is a story that will illustrate the values of the organization or the leaders in the organization in, in a better way than just telling you, oh, well, here's our corporate value statement. <laughs> like you, you may have worked at enough companies to know that you know, every company's got a, a one-page document that lays out their corporate values or ethics or something like that. And it basically goes – you get it the first day you join the company and it goes in a file drawer and you never see it again. Um, a values story, a what we believe story, is a real story about something that happened to somebody at the company that will illustrate what those values are when they – either when they come into conflict with each other or when you're challenged to figure out – what the right thing to do was because you know these these values are only words on a piece of paper until they're really tested in the real world so uh, probably the best way is for me to give you an example so um, the example I use in the book is a, a story from Walmart so um, you know the largest retailer in the world uh, well let's see back in the early 80s um, in Texas the largest retailer was HEB grocery stores it stood for HE but the name of the founder of the company um, until and, and they were the largest retailer for decades from the 1920s, but then around the early 80s, Walmart uh, had had become the largest retailer in Texas and m- most places in the world by then. And so the the current CEO or the CEO at the time in the early 80s was named Charles Butt. He was the grandson of the founder of the company. Um, he literally called Sam Walton, uh, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, and said two things. <laughs> One. Congratulations! You're now the largest retailer in Texas, so you're you're bigger than us now. My family's been running the largest retailer for for decades. Um, secondly, I'd love to know how you did it. Like I'd I'd love to bring my leadership team to your headquarters and just on a learning mission to figure out what what it is you're doing so well that we could learn from. Now you'd think that Sam Walton would just tell the guy to take a hike, right? I mean, <laughs> you're a, you're our competitor. I, why on earth would I try and teach you what we do? But that's not what he said. He said, well. I don't know if I can help you, but I'll be happy to try. So they made an appointment for the Charles Butt and all the executives there to fly to Arkansas and meet him at one of the local Walmart stores on a certain day at a certain time. Well, that certain day and certain time came. They show up at the store. They start walking through the aisles looking for Sam Walton, and they see him at the end of an aisle talking to a customer. And they start marching up the aisle, and Sam Walton sees them coming up, this gaggle of executives in business suits. He holds his hand up, and he says, Charles, um, hold on just a minute. Uh, I'm, let me finish this conversation with this young woman. And he turns back around and he's talking to this young woman about ironing board covers. So he's literally showing her the different shapes and, and color patterns and price ranges of all these different ironing board covers. And eventually she picks one of them, puts it in the buggy and kind of shoves off to the register. And he turns around to Charles Butt and in all serious excitement says, Charles, do you know how many worn out ironing board covers there are in this country? 
We're going to sell a million of them this month. Now, what can I teach you? And, and that's kind of the end of the story because you, um, if you're paying attention, you've really learned a lot already. So I'll just I'll ask you, if you were a new hire at Walmart and they, on your first day on the job in Bentonville, Arkansas, and you're the marketing director there or something, and they, they told you that story, what values would you learn about Walmart from that story? The, the customer. customer. Yeah, the customer cust- is number one, right? That's Walmart's mantra. Sorry, the customer is number one. That, and, and that's, I think, the main lesson you learned from that. What, Sam Walton had invited Charles Butt and his entire leadership team to fly hundreds of miles to meet with him at that store at that time. And when they showed up on time, he made them wait. He made them wait because he was dealing with one customer to sell her a $10 ironing board cover. But she was more important to the billionaire founder of the company than this gaggle of executives, highly paid executives who'd just flown, you know, hundreds of miles to see him. He was demonstrating that the customer is number one. Now, I don't, I don't think he did that on purpose. He wasn't trying to create some learning experience for them. That's just who he was, that the, the customer is number one. So the point is you share a story like that and you can see in that a number of company values. First of all, the customer is number one. Second of all, what you said, um, deal with one customer at a time and, and make sure that they're happy. And I, I would just call that persistence. You know, he did not stop talking to that young woman until she was satisfied with her choice and put it in the buggy and shoved off to the register. You know, you could learn other things like um, the importance of knowing the details of your business. Like here, he's the CEO of the company. They sell tens of thousands of items, but he knew enough about the ironing board covers to help her in the aisle, right? Um, And you could probably learn when I ask people this in a workshop, they always come up with, you know, half a dozen or a dozen different uh, company values. And that's kind of the point is one good story can illustrate many company values far better than just the list of company values they probably gave you on your first day. So that's a, that's a, uh, a what we believe story. So um, let me shift to the second part of your that, question. That's a good is, one. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And every company's got them or they should, those things have happened around the company. You just need to capture them and craft them into a story and use them, share them with the rest of the organization while you're trying to deploy your company values or instead of deploying that list or whatever. But, um, yeah, so that's one. The, the other one you asked about was a, how we're different from our competitor story, I think. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, the, the example I give there is about a guy named uh, Shrad Madison, who's the CEO of United Building Maintenance, which is a commercial cleaning company. So these are the folks that come in and, you know, into your offices at night and clean. And um, so when he's calling on a new prospective uh, client, he, you know, he's got a sales pitch he goes through. But um, he also usually tells them a story about what he does when he gets a new client. Because he always does the same thing. He said there's typically a 30-day transition period uh, during which the old company is continuing to clean. And at the end of the 30 days, my company is going to take over. And he says, during that 30 days, I always do the same thing. I sneak into the building at night, in the middle of the night, to watch how they're doing what they're doing. And sneak's probably too strong of a word because he gets their permission to do it. But the point is, um, those employees are typically contract employees doing that work and he's going to inherit them. They're going to work for him at the end of the month. So he wants to go in and see before he starts if they're well-trained and properly equipped to do the job. So he said, for example, last uh, month uh, we took over the Verizon building contract in New Jersey. So it's two o'clock in the morning. I, you know, I walk in and I find this guy uh, vacuuming the carpets 
And he's using the same kind of residential quality vacuum cleaner that I use at home. And he said, now you got to understand those corridors are 12 feet wide and it's a half a mile around. He said, it's going to take the guy over a month just to vacuum these carpets one time. Plus, and that, it's not going to do a good job. And that machine's going to break down every week or so because it's just not made for that kind of a volume of usage. So when we took over, we put him into a, you know, a triple wide, you know, industrial grade vacuum machine that um, will do the job much faster and do a much better job. Um, and that thing's going to last forever. He said, so I went to another floor and I found somebody shampooing the carpets. And he said, it's kind of the same thing. He's using the same kind of squeeze bottle, walk behind shampooer that I use at home. And it's the same problem. It's, it's not going to work very well. It's going to break down. Um, it's going to take forever. Uh, he said, so when we took over, we put him into one of those commercial grade riding shampoos, you know, um, he said, which again, will do the job in a fraction of the time, does a much more quality job and it gets the guy off his feet, right? He's riding around on this thing, sitting on it. So that means I have fewer workman's comp issues, which means my client has fewer workman's comp issues. He said, but the last thing I wanted to do was to see how they're dusting the offices. So I went to another floor, found the offices and I looked on top of the, all the file cabinets and I, I saw the same thing on top of all of them. And and and, and here's what it was. It, it was a, a half a moon swiped out on top. <laughs> and he said, I knew exactly what that means. And you probably do too. He said, uh, those cabinets are standard five and a half feet tall. He said, I, I bet you some of the people cleaning them are less than that tall. And he walked around enough to find some people to kind of confirm that that was the case. And he said, so it's not that they were just lazy and they weren't doing a, a good job. They literally weren't tall enough to reach the, the back of those five and a half foot tall, three foot deep cabinets. And he said, and that's what leaves that little half moon kind of swiped out on top. And he said, the truth is they'd be better off not dusting it at all because it's the contrast between the dusty part and the clean part that makes it obvious that it's not being cleaned properly. He said, so when we took over, we just gave them all these little plastic 18 inch cheap extension wands for their dust cloth so they could reach the back, you know, problem solved. So he tells that story to a prospective new client to illustrate the three reasons why his company is different from their competitors, right? They use triple wide industrial grade vacuumers. They use commercial grade and riding shampooers and they use these little 18 inch extension wands. Now he could just tell his prospect that here are the three reasons why we're better than our competitors. But hopefully you can see now that you've heard the story, the story does a much better job of illustrating the difference in that those three things can make, you know, because and some of it's just because you can remember it easier. Like right now, you can easily picture that guy riding around on that shampoo or like the Zamboni driver at the ice skating rink, right? Like you can see that in your brain. You can see somebody easily reaching the back of the cabinets, uh, uh, the the uh, file drawers with their 18-inch extension wands, right? You can see that in your mind's eye. And so a story about how you're different from your competitors is far more powerful than just a list of features and benefits. Another uh, way he's differentiating himself is he's offering a custom solution, telling about how he went in and customized the solution. I hadn't even thought about that, but that certainly could be true as well. And I think it also communicates how, um, kind of like the Sam Walton story, how in touch the boss is with the work going on. The boss is going in there and checking it out and seeing how it's done and making sure everything's being done properly. So the boss is engaged in what's going on. So I, th I think, yeah, it communicates m multiple benefits, I think. Besides small businesses, I work with a lot of marketing directors. And one of your stories is about explaining what your company does for their customers. And I think this is the main story mm. that they need to tell. Yep. Can you give me an example of that? 
Yeah. So yeah, I call it a, a what we do for our customers or just a, a sales story, right? Um, and, and by the way, that that uh, last story I told how we're different from our competitors, I, I typically call that a marketing story just because I think part of marketing's job is to differentiate yourself from your competitors. And I typically call the one this this one a sales story, but you could probably interchange those. They're 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 similar. Um, but yeah, the example I, I give for what we do for our customers, um, the example there is from a guy named Ben Ben Coberna, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Easy Buy. And they're a reverse auction company, which is kind of an interesting thing if you've never heard of it they uh well I'll, I'll i'll share his story and you'll see what they do um in fact he shares this story when he's in the early phases of explaining to somebody what his company does for a living and why they should be comfortable hiring him to do that and he says well so for example one of my earliest clients was a city government in central florida and they had been paying two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to a sludge removal company to come to their wastewater treatment plant, pick up the sludge and haul it off to whatever safe location. And they wanted to save money. They thought that's a lot of money. Let's see if we can save some money. So they hired his company uh, to do a reverse auction to find a, uh, a sludge removal company that would do it for less money. So he, he said, so the way we run these auctions, we go find a bunch of companies that could do that do sludge removal we invite them to a pre-bid meeting where we're going to explain how the reverse auction is going to work, and then we start the auction. He said, so at this pre-bid meeting, we had all these sludge removal representatives of these sludge removal companies showing up, and one of them, of course, was the incumbent, right? the guy who runs the company, owns the company, who's been getting paid $250,000 to remove the sludge for the last many years. Um, and he said, when this guy walked in the room, he was livid. He walked in yelling and screaming. He brought a lawyer with him. He was yelling at us. He said, this is this is illegal. You can't do this. It, it's un-American. The guy, he said at one point he threw a chair across the room. I mean, he was just inconsolable angry because he realizes he's about to get some money taken out of his pocket by this process, right? And they said, well, you know, eventually we got the guy settled down and explained how the whole process was going to work and got the auction started. Well, the first bid this guy puts in, of course, is for $250,000 because that's what he's been getting paid. Well, you know, pretty quickly somebody puts in a bid lower than that. So this guy lowers his bid to, you know, 240 and 220 and 200 and then 150. Well, the next bid he put in was for $0. And they, they okay, well, that's obviously a mistake. So they pause the auction. They And they, everybody's been sent back off to their offices to to do these things. So they call the guy on the phone and they say, hey, look, uh, somebody at your company made a mistake. You, you put in a zero dollar bid. So what we, we've done, we pause the auction. I'm going to give you a few minutes to go in and put in the bid you intended, and then we'll turn it back on. And the guy said, well, you know, that's, that won't be necessary. He said, uh, that wasn't a mistake. I put that bid in on purpose. And, you know, they were like, what? <laughs> that makes no sense at all. Why would you bid zero dollars? And he said, look, I've been selling that sludge to local farmers to use as fertilizer for 20 years. I'll just come pick it up for free. And and that's what they've been doing ever since, right? So he obviously won the bid. So Ben tells that story to new prospects to, first of all, to help them understand what a reverse auction even means, right? Okay, so the, now you get from the story how the process works. But he also tells them that story. Uh, hey, it's, it's a super great um, uh, success story, right? That they literally saved the company a hundred percent of the cost of what they were doing on this, which of course would rarely happen, but you know, it's a great success story. But the third reason he tells the story 
is that it it illustrates um, uh, how to uh, get beyond an objection that many of his prospects have, which is this. They said, if I do this, my suppliers are going to be mad at me, right? Just like that guy, you know, was mad at, at his supplier because um, nobody wants to go through this process because they know they're going to end up making less money. And so he tells that story to relieve them of that burden because at the end of it, he can say, look, uh, of course, your suppliers are going to get mad when you do this, but they're not going to get mad at you. They're going to get mad at me, Ben Coberna. I was the guy in the room that they were yelling at. You're not even in the room. All right. So that's part of what we do for you is we save you lots of money. And anybody that gets angry, they're going to yell at us. Right? So they don't deal with you anymore. So um, anyway, that, that's an example of a what we do for our customer stories to illustrate in kind of plain language and very simple uh, language and in a story context. So you can see very concretely what a company does for somebody else, especially if it's complicated and hard to understand. Yeah, it sounds like that one was complicated. Yeah, like the first time I ever heard of it, reverse auction. I like. I'm not even sure what that would mean, right? You you need that explained to you with a story. Is there a way that a small business owner, someone who's leading a company, or a marketing director would find these stories in their company? Yeah, so um, a, a number of ways. But you should start with a wish list of stories that you want. And that was part of the idea behind the book is if I, you know, out of the dozens and dozens of types of stories I think leaders need, here are the most important 10. So this ought to be the start to your wish list. These are the 10 stories that I think you should start out looking for. You should probably add to it eventually, but it's a good starting place. And the places to look to find them, it starts with your own history. Like ask yourself, have any of these things ever happened to me? And in each of the chapters, there's one chapter on each of these stories. There are specific questions at the end that you can ask yourself, um, you know, to, to help you find these stories, but you're looking in your own past. You're asking your peers at the company, you give, show them your wish list. Here are the three most important stories I need to work on. Do you have any stories about things like this? Um, you're going to want to interview some of your best customers, you know, so for the, the, the sales story, like we just told a way to get that is look at your best customers, the customers who love you the most, who, who use you as often as they can, who spend the most money with you. Interview those people and find out the story, their success stories of how they've uh, really benefited from whatever it is that you you sell them. Those are the stories you're gonna you're gonna want to tell. You know, when you're talking about um, a recruiting story, well, you're you're gonna look at the employees who work there and find the great stories from them. Why did you come join the company? Have you ever thought about leaving and and chose not to? Ah, tell us about that decision. Why did you decide to stay? You know, those will become great stories for, in that case, a, a recruiting story. So it, each of the ten has a, a different place you'd go look for the stories, but that's all kind of spelled out in the book how to find them. Any more tips on on how to craft them well? Yeah, and, and that's that's actually been the focus of most of my other books is, you know, you can go really deep into, well, what's the structure of a story and how do you create emotional engagement? How do you create a surprise ending and how long should the stories be? And and that's actually most of what I do with my training clients is I'm, I'm teaching them that and we're going through a full day workshop and, and, and creating stories along the way. But if I could give you um, one tip here, it would be um, – to have the right structure behind your stories. And the way to have the right structure is to make sure that you're answering the right questions in the right order. And so, and I'll just give them to you. So there are eight questions that your story needs to answer and in this order. And here they are. Number one, 
why should I bother listening to this story? <laughs> right? You got you to answer that question first. And like literally in the first 10 or 15 seconds, you need to give them a reason why they should listen to your story. But once you've done that, then you need to answer the, you've earned the right to answer the next five questions. Where and when did it take place? Who's the main character and what did they want? What was the problem or opportunity they ran into? What did they do about it? And how did it turn out in the end? Right now, that should feel like the natural flow of, of a story, and, and it is. But if you're doing the math, there's, that's only six, so there are two more. What did you learn from the story, and what do you think I should go do now? That's your opportunity to make a recommendation once they've, they've heard your story. So you, if you can a- just answer those eight questions, a story will emerge kind of in a natural flow of what a story should sound like. Now, now you, da- you need to have an event that you're trying to tell a story about, uh, but if you answer the, if you tell the story by answering those eight questions, your story will already be in a pretty good uh, structure to start with. Thanks, Paul. Yep. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the B2B Marketing Results Show. Are you struggling to attract enterprise clients for your technology products and services? Trailblazer Writing provides outsourced B2B growth support for enterprise technology sales, and we offer a free trial. Learn more at trailblazerwriting.com or contact me at derek at trailblazerwriting.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at trailblazerwriting.com.